Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? In the movie Six String Samurai, the world is devastated by a nuclear war in 1957, and the only way the United States is able to survive is it rallies around the leadership of Elvis Presley and the power of rock and roll. Hey, if it works, but too bad it didn't happen in 2012. Otherwise, the world could recover in style. Gangnam style. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined again in the podcast studio today by my co-host Gabe. It's been a while, Gabe. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Tim. Good to be back. Yeah, I've been. I need to recover from this depressing source material. You know, not all of us are nuclear uh, aficionados like you. So I've been doing a lot of drinking. Uh, yeah, just just really <laughs> bad. No, no, I've, it's it's been fine. Just traveling and things. So yeah, I think the last episode we might have did was some of all fears. I think it was. Yes, and uh, it took it took you a while to. I know. Yeah, that. just that Ben Affleck. You know, it, he he really gets me. Well, I'm glad you're back here because. You know, while you've been gone, I've been doing a little bit silly topics for the podcast. Right, right. I've done Starship Troopers. We talked about the song 99 Luft Balloons. Covered Game of Thrones. We've talked about even a nuclear-themed escape room that I did with my coworkers. So now it's time we get back to the classics, the more serious nuclear weapon films. All right, so what do you got for us then? So we're going to talk about the 1998 movie, Six String Samurai, which is a cult film art house picture directed by Lance Mungia, who's also known for another, probably the other movie that he's done, The Crow, one of the, the Crow sequels, you know, the, the Crow movies. You're a big fan of The Crow movies? I'm pretty sure when I was in, like, middle school or high school and I'd be, like, watching Showtime, uh, like, really late at night, th th that's what they'd show, like, that kind of stuff. That was all the B-roll, basically. And you never know which, which of The Crow movies it right, is. Right, exactly. So one of those was directed by this gentleman. And it was filmed over a couple of weekends in Death Valley National Park. It's the inspiring tale of how civilization rebuilds itself after a disaster, a nuclear war in this case, and how the power of rock and roll can bridge generation gaps and movie genres and ultimately defeat death itself. Bridge, that's good. That's a pun. Pretty good, right? Fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of sarcasm here. This is a, a very interesting art house film, and it's, it's one of those movies where it's clear, like, the equipment is good. The film stock is good. Some of the action sequences are not bad, but kind of a lot of the other stuff is not necessarily great. Well, when you, I think you pitched two choices for this episode to me, and when I read the description of this, I was like, "Oh, we gotta, we gotta do that." The premise, just, and we'll get into it. But and I was ready to hate this movie mm -hmm. and just like poop all over it, and uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about it. I can see why this is a cult classic. So the, there's basically two main people in this movie. Jeffrey Falcon uh, is an actor who plays a character named Buddy. We'll get into maybe what his last name might be a little bit later. But in real life, Jeffrey Falcon is a martial arts star who in the 1980s and 90s was very famous in a lot of Hong Kong kung fu martial arts films. And then we also have one other character here, uh, Justin McGuire, who plays, I think they call him the boy, the kid, yeah, some, like the child. And he's best known for Six String Samurai and... I mean, that, that's, that's it. Okay, all right. He yeah. hasn't had much of other, uh, a career. 
Um, that's all right. I mean, he has this movie to to talk about. On Rotten Tomatoes, you would think this was very popular. 60% of critics love this film. Yeah. Based on 20 reviews, but still 60% of them, not too that's bad. That's almost certified fresh. That's, yeah. It, it, it might be. Yeah. I think I think it has the, the red icon there, the, the red tomato. It had a limited theatrical release. You know, it's a cult film after all. On a budget of $2 million, it made $124,000. Oh, geez. So not, not necessarily great. It was intended to be the start of a trilogy but it is a cult classic that's beloved by film students, mostly unknown by people who aren't film students. Uh, but I've, I've come across this as references in other things. So it's referenced very strongly in the Fallout video game series. Okay. Including the second of the newer ones, the okay. one that's called Fallout New Vegas, because of the movie basically taking place near Las Vegas. There's lots of references. And it kind of has that same sense of comedy and a little bit tongue-in-cheek throughout everything. So is that where you found out about them? I'm curious how That's you... That's how I first came okay. across that story. gotcha. Yeah. And you watched it after playing Fallout, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah. So okay. I watched it a long time ago, and then I kind of rewatched it for this one. There's a whole genre of post-nuclear war, apocalyptic, trying to survive after a nuclear war movies. And right. Some of them are serious. Some of them are more tongue-in-cheek. And I have a full list of that we'll talk about near the end. And for luckily for people listening, it's a hard movie to find on, say, television, but it's not a hard movie to find on the internet. It, it's on YouTube in its full length and everything. Yeah, that, that's how you know it, dealing in the obscura when when you're looking at a movie that's available for free on YouTube. You, you know we're dabbling in some, some funky stuff. The last little element I want to get into before we talk about the movie proper is that it was financed in a very interesting way. It was financed, you know, first by some people who were just a little bit wealthy and they and they injected some seed money to get it started. But then they cut a trailer and they tried to sell it to different places. And the place that picked it up was a, a stock exchange type finance system website that was started in the late 90s. And what you could do is you could buy stock as a fan in a film and then have a say in how the film I is can't, made. I... I can't believe you haven't done this yet. I just can't. This has Tim Westmeyer written all over it. Cause, you know, I, I would have basically, I'd use my, my, my Bitcoin for, for financing <laughs> nuke movies. That would be certainly kind of fun. But this was a very interesting approach to this. And that's how they were able to get $2 million for the film. And it's, it's pretty great. Uh, here's an example. Originally, this movie was meant to be called The Blade. But a cease and desist letter from New Line Cinema because they were going to do a movie with Wesley Snipes yeah, right. as Blade. Blade, right. So it needed a new name. So this website, the Hollywood Stock Exchange, they basically asked the fans, hey, what should we call this? And then after about 4,000 submissions, this is the current title. Six String Samurai was submitted by one of the fans. Is this stock or investors still operating, do you know? That's a great question. It was operating in the early 2000s. Because movie came out in 1998, uh, so why don't you look that up while we get started here on the plot? In 1957, the bomb dropped. The last bastion of freedom became a place called Lost Vegas, and Elvis was crowned king. Now his only heir has died. And Vegas needs a new king. And one guitar-picking, sword-swinging wanderer is fighting for the throne. And one lone orphan is along for the ride. If you scratch my guitar, I'll kill you. Neither armies, nor bowlers, nor death himself will keep them from their quest. 
I gotta get a new gig. They called him the Six String Samurai, and he became a legend. So, of course, as usual, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen this movie on YouTube late at night like I watched it, you know, go ahead and do that. Yeah, so Hollywood Stock Exchange still looks like it's operating. I don't know what kind of movies you can buy into with this, but probably nothing that's going to... It's not going to land you on the red carpet, let's just say that. Well, if all of a sudden there's just one investor out there who just keeps putting money in these films and, and is the person that's like, I think we should have a, a nuclear bomb in the movie, and here's how we should do it. You know where that well, yeah, investment's right. coming from. Yeah, exactly. So we open up this masterpiece of a film immediately on a mushroom cloud, right? Like the first 10 seconds of the film were treated to two big mushroom clouds. And I spent, I'm not proud of it, a good amount of time trying to find out exactly which nuclear test this was because it's clearly, to me, it's recognizable. It's one I've seen a lot. It's one of the, what they call effects tests. So it was a nuclear detonation that among many reasons why they did it, it was to see what a nuclear bomb would do to things like mannequins and people. What kind of effect would it have? Is this like where you see the clip where there's the house that's kind of getting blown away? Absolutely. Okay. They did a number of those different tests. There's a couple different operations, like Operation Q-Ball is one of the most famous ones where you can see quite a number of these. I'm pretty sure I was able to track this one down. It is a test that was conducted as part of Operation Upshot Knothole from March to June 1953. And I think it's either... They either So that's the operation name, and there's a couple different test shots that they did as part of that. Shot being like a detonation, an attempted detonation of, of one of the devices. It was either shot Annie or Grable. And it was a probably a tower shot, meaning like it was on a, a large, tall tower. Okay. So that's what Annie was. If it was shot Grable, it's super interesting because shot Grable was a test fire of a atomic cannon, a large cannon that would fire a shell with a nuclear warhead on it and then detonated it as an airburst and then determined, like, what were the effects of different things. Was there any thought that they would ever use an atomic cannon, like, in an actual war? That was the plan, to see how this would work. And this was—either one of these two shots was about 12 to 15 kilotons. This sounds like something you would see in a Roadrunner cartoon, an atomic (laughs) cannon. That just sounds too ridiculous. Well, it can be if we can fund this in Hollywood stock exchange. Oh, my God. You can see this also in full color if you watch the movie Trinity and Beyond which is a um, very interesting film about nuclear testing and the experience of nuclear testing. I think that's probably where they, the same stock footage and just in Trinity and beyond, they clean it up and they make it a little bit more colorful. Okay. This is a shot where you see a bomb go off in the distance. And what they probably did was they took stock footage, they reversed the shot. So instead of the bomb being in the left side of their screen, which is where it happened relative to the camera, they switch it to the right, and then you see a shockwave come by, and it knocks over what looks like a fence and telephone poles. I don't know. It, they, it, it was super interesting that they decided that one as opposed to any of the other ones. Right. Um, but while we have this detonation happen, Gabe, do you want to read the opening text crawl? We have some text to introduce the world and kind of why we are talking about this on the podcast. Yeah, so we see the explosions, and then on the screen... You see, in 1957, the bomb dropped, and the Russians took over what was America. The last bastion of freedom became a place called Las Vegas, and Elvis was crowned king. After 40 rockin' years, the king is dead. Every guitar-pickin', sword-swingin' opportunist, including Death himself, hears the call echoing across the wastelands. 
Vegas needs a new king. Great premise for a movie. I, I like know, it. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love that they just get right into it. There's no origin story. It's just boom, you're in. Boom. Literally boom, mushroom cloud. There you go. Plot starts. We hear someone on the radio under K Lost radio station. I like how even in the a post apocalyptic future they still keep the K designation. Yeah, right. K means that it is a West Coast radio station, right? As opposed to W. W is East Coast. Is East Coast. Yeah. I like how they still keep that I know. together. They yeah. have some semblance of how of order. It almost sounds like it's like being blasted through loudspeakers around the world. It's, I don't even know if it's coming through a radio. I don't think I've seen a radio yeah. anywhere in the movie. And it just it feels like this is just something like uh, like a 1984 where everybody has to listen to this, you know. We get this radio host, and he says that, all right, we're looking for a new king and a hero to be able to take over leadership of Las Vegas, and we need that hero to travel to Las Vegas and claim the crown. So it's like an open call for anyone who wants to become the new king. And so is the idea that just showing up is the prize and just everybody's going to be trying to hack each other along the way and that whoever can make it there? Or is, I, I was unclear whether yeah. you got there, you faced some final challenge or some boss level to like actually or is he just like literally like showing up to get a free subway sandwich you just have to go with like a coupon and you get it it's a great question it's unclear if there's going to be a battle of the bands or it literally is just a death match whoever can make it there will be will be crowned i think it's probably some combination of the two they figure if you can't make it there then you can't be then you're not worthy of being king but if say there's two or three people that get there then you still have to figure out somehow right Maybe a, a, a battle of the bands, a, a, a clap rometer meter about who is the best band. Right, Probably yeah, some voting yeah, system yeah. like that. Yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. Forget that story. What we immediately then follow into is we see a wheat field, and through some weird camera work, we like the lens distortion and all this kind of stuff, we see a, a child running through a wheat field. His mother is hit by, I think, an arrow fired by some kind of mutant yeah, person we, yeah, thing. Yeah, funky looking. And the kid, fortunately, is saved by our hero. I don't know our hero. Yeah, you don't really, and you don't really see his face. It's kind of this guy. He's wearing a suit. He has an umbrella, but most importantly, he has a guitar and he has a sword. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's his that's his kit for this for this adventure. Yep, he's got a he's got these like horn rim glasses, like Buddy Holly, hmm. right? Yeah, um, Buddy Holly who. What what was some of his songs that he's that he's Peggy known Sue, for? Uh, the day this is the day that I die. Uh, who's also Buddy Holly is very famous for sadly dying relatively young in a plane crash. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is what the song American Pie, right? Yeah, the day the music died. So in this world, that didn't happen. He did not die in a plane crash. Instead, he wanders around the wasteland. Uh, as you mentioned, he's got like this umbrella that really is mostly a broken thing at this point. Doesn't really serve a lot of. Un- I'm glad it's not raining. Let's just say that. And do we do we think that this is the real Buddy Holly, or do we think that this is you know somebody who takes on the mantle? Because I don't know if the time works out. Let's save that for the end because okay. we we need to go through all of this so that we're an educated guest. Because that is a an open question that I have at the end here. So he's able to save the kid, but not fast enough to save the mother. The mother dies, and the kid is looking for someone to, you know, follow. Uh, but our hero, again, the hero of the movie, is not that interested in helping this child. I think he was more just interested in killing mutants than he was really saving anybody, because if he just leaves this kid by himself, obviously, things aren't going to go so well for him. He, he threatens to cut the kid's teddy bear in half if he doesn't stop following him. And also, I'll say the very funny line where he draws a line in the sand with his sword and says, if you cross this line, bad things will happen. Cross that line, kid, 
Cut your little teddy bear in half. And the kid very smartly like covers up this the yeah, line with, with sand with dirt. Yeah. So this kid, he's covered in these rags. He he's wearing these like very tattered clothing. Even right. Buddy's character, the clothing is very tattered. It's and their faces are covered in dirt. It's you yeah. definitely get this feel of of nuclear apocalypse. And the kid, he doesn't talk. He just makes these yelling noises, which I found very like very grating. And yep. that was the worst part of this movie for me, honestly. But was this supposed to be, like, I remember, I haven't watched Threads because you told me not to. In that episode, it's like people just can't communicate because society has broken down. Do you think that was it or just this kid is like an idiot and just can't? I think it's more of the latter. Uh, Uh, I don't necessarily think, because he speaks later. Yeah. And he speaks very eloquently later about, like, (laughs) cars and engines and, and things like that. I think it's just meant to be, I mean, he did just go through a pretty traumatic experience seeing his mother killed although he gets over that pretty quickly uh once he he meets and likes likes buddy but buddy doesn't want to deal with it but he says i've got a gig in las vegas and the wasteland ain't no place for a kid which the answer to that would be like well where do i where's not the wasteland yeah right exactly aren't you going to las vegas where the wasteland is better would you take the kid to a safe place whatever they're not important i I just love the way his character delivers the lines like they're just like he's just so like cool and like dismissive and he's just like whatever lots of I got lots, of, lots of snapping yeah he loves to snap after he says everything it's uh i'm gonna start working that into my own uh yeah i mean you're gonna hear a lot more snapping out of me tim great well uh, i'm sure they will not grow tiring almost immediately yep yeah there it is it's it's annoying now <laughs> so our characters randomly wander into a desolate kind of half destroyed mission style building where it's also a cantina it's a watering hole it's a place you get a drink there's a band playing. You want to describe the band that's playing? Yeah, so um, it's a group. Of, it's like a group of guitarists, and um, they have these like red guitars. They're called the Red Elvises. So think like 1950s surf rock, but with a Soviet style twist. So very like Russian folksy type music. I think they're playing some some Russian folk style stuff. They actually did the soundtrack for the movie, which I thought was great. Just the background, and yeah. there's constantly like this guitar, like surf guitar music in the background. They're clearly not a fan of Buddy, and they want to kill him. Everybody wants his guitar. The, the the bartender at this cantina wants to touch it. Or Buddy. Yep, he snaps. Says, don't touch <laughs> it. Uh, and then there's clearly, like, both the Red Elvises and then a, another group that we meet called the the Pin Pals. Which, is that a Simpsons reference? Because there was that Simpsons episode with the Pin Pals. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. There's also a couple of what I think are Star Wars references in here. Oh, I'm sure. But anyway. It's basically the movie, the, the major themes is, like, Star Wars... And Wizard of Oz. Kind well, of I'll, that story I'll, I'll get together. to, when we get in a little bit later, I'll get to my, there was a one reference I picked up. But anyway. Okay. Well, everybody wants his guitar and they're like under orders from something. There's a reference to death, like literally as if death as a concept, but as a person. Right. Wants his guitar. So everybody's trying to get it. The Red Elvises say that if once he gets drunk, then they'll attack him. But then the Pin Pals all of a sudden show up. And the Pin Pals are, imagine like a bowling team. And they're there, and they all have bowling-themed weapons, including switchblades inside of a bowling pin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and they try to attack him, but then we learn, you know, Buddy's pretty good. He fights all of them. I don't know if he even has a weapon for most of the time. 
he puts his weapon down and he ends up like basically beating them up. And and the scenes are it's actually very well choreographed and they got the you know there's this music going on in the background. I mean it's clear that I forget the actor's name, but he's he's pretty good at Jeffrey Falcon. Yeah, he's, he's pretty good. Yeah, he's good at he's good at martial arts. This is not a uh, they they got a good guy for this. And two, just the the vibe. I mean, once again, I thought the costumes were great. These pin pal guys. It's very like fifties retro, and but it's kind of like torn and tattered and. The, the the expressions are very like over dramatic and almost like comic book like cartoony kind of thing. It's a lot of people you can clearly see of oh well the bomb dropped and it was a very brain shattering psyche destroying event. Yeah, and people reverted to something to make sense of the world. Yeah. This these guys clearly were on a bowling team together, and they decided that they were going to base their new identity in this post apocalyptic world. So on bowling. So if the bomb dropped today, like, what would be your? Would you be like the meadery guy? You'd be the mead guy, and you'd like throw mead bottles at people. You'd have a Molotov cocktails, but with mead bottles. I think that would be terrific. Uh, that call them the Mazer, the Mazer Razor, because <laughs> uh, those are what you people that call amazing. Uh, amazing is 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 mead making. Um, yeah, no, that would. Or the wood. You could do the wood burner. You like burn people's faces with wood, and you'd have like a calling card where you'd be like. And then I then I drink some mead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. No, yeah, exactly. This all works pretty well. Uh, you would be clearly the gyro pilot from Mad Max. Right, yeah, right. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah there's be... no there's no debate on that one. That's, I can take that. So, yeah. So, there, there's also this really funny line where one of the bowlers turns to Buddy Holly and he says, Nice tuxedo. Nice tuxedo to die in. <laughs> Great. It's, it's so – it doesn't take itself seriously. Yeah. It, I love it. But he defeats uh, everybody. And he, there's this reference to this character named Top Hat, and that Top Hat has put a bounty on his guitar. So that's the character we'll meet eventually. But uh, and then Buddy eventually he tries to to leave. There's this other character that randomly shows up with a car, just guy with car and rifle basically. And the kid during this fight steals the car uh, and then tries to to get away from everything that's happening, uh, which is really good because then we actually meet this character, uh, Death. Uh, who is, I think, meant to be, you know, death itself, like a, basically like the the embodiment of the Grim Reaper. But instead of looking like the Grim Reaper, uh, he looks like Slash from Guns N' Roses. Yeah, exactly. With, but with his face covered, like all black. Mm-hmm. And this is, to me, I like had a like uh, shades of Vader because he says something. Yeah, he, yeah. He comes after the Red Elvises and he says something like, you've disappointed me for the last time, which is like right out of Star Wars. Yep. I asked you to kill one simple guitarist, and what do I get? Dead bald guys. You four have failed me for the last... Nice shoes. It's great, and he has, instead of stormtroopers, he's got his, uh, like, basically a bow and arrow posse around him that talk in really funny voices but they look like him but they don't have top hats uh, yeah. and they fire arrows and that's like their thing they fire bows and arrows and they even hit one of these this kid uh who's yelling things like tag you're it yeah exactly to, i think the the other kid who's driving away in the stolen car exactly there's a lot of weird stuff going on. but i think that the whole point too is death he definitely whereas uh buddy he's very much like 50s vibe yeah. Uh, death he looks like he could you put him on stage with a metal band once again i wish joel was here uh mm-hmm. but you put him on stage with a metal band he would look like right in place so he's clearly like some next evolution in this like music themed world and and death wants to be the new elvis 
but can you it's pretty clear he's going around also we'll see later like killing other musical artists who may be wanting to to claim the throne this is very like meta there's some like meta music stuff in here right about, instead yeah. of radio killing the uh video killing the radio video killing yeah. the radio star yeah it's it's death killing other genres of music so then we're treated to one of the weirdest car chases i've ever seen in my life it's basically all of a sudden buddy and the kid are driving in a car and the kid is driving with like platform shoes yeah he like t- he like rope bricks to his feet or something like that yeah he's driving this plymouth very slowly and behind them is a car filled with cavemen yeah, it was exactly, yeah. Yeah. So maybe these people came out of the, they went into a nuclear bunker and assumed the caveman persona. All right, that makes more sense. Uh, maybe. That makes, that makes a ton, that, I mean, that does. That yeah. makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, they're, like, engaged in this really super slow car chase, literally to the point where, like, the cavemen jump out of their car and then run up and try to get into Buddy's car. But that doesn't work that well because Buddy just, like... He just kills them. Yeah, yeah. he just slices them up. Um, the Buddy and the kids grunt at each other it's kind of this weird scene like i agree with you this is the part where i'm like guys this movie is weirdly enough better than this Ah! Ah! buddy will like say things to the kid and it's clear that the kid is some of some use to him because of his car skills and that's why buddy now where before he was like not very big on this kid now he's he realizes the kid's amused but he's still he's kind of like abusive to him it's kind of like a bully he's kind of bullying the kid it's not cool and the kid will just be like grunting back or like making these like vocalizations back it's very annoying yeah but but then the car breaks down and they need to try to find a way to fix it and buddy looks for this mysterious ratchet that he's constantly looking for if he can just have a ratchet he could fix the car the ratchet's like a through line throughout this movie doesn't go anywhere but yeah he's always looking for a ratchet so he tries to trade for a ratchet like he basically drops this kid off with his family and I, i actually really like this family this family is is meant to be like if the bomb didn't go off like they're pretending like everything's fine. They're night. They're still 1950s because this is meant to be taking place in the 1990s. Yeah, right. right? Uh, and they're, they're still dressed and they talk like everything's fine. They're they've got crazed look on their eyes. Yeah, but they have this house. I mean, it's a house in the middle of nowhere, the you know mid-century style. But everything around them, the house is like falling apart. Yeah. Once again, clothes are in tatters. They have like the face are covered in dust and. They're just like, oh, we're about to sit down for dinner. And the guy, I think, um, he seems to think that Buddy is this guy named Wally Fishbinder, Fishfinder. <laughs> yeah. And just starts chatting with him about, like, oh, how's the weather? And, like, you know, did you make the sale? And, like, this kind of stuff. Look who's come to dinner. Why, it's Wally Fishbinder and his little boy, Jen. How the hell are you, boy? So I suppose you don't have a ratchet in that bag, right? All little Rusty can talk about is riding in the fish finder's new Studebaker. Can I get you anything? Some coffee? Would you like some candy? Here, would you like some candy? Don't you think this is a nice family, kid? Look, they're a little strange, but they're better than what's outside. But yeah, Buddy trades the kid for a ratchet for this family. And I think now we think, okay, Buddy's like done with the kid. And kind of like a not nice guy for doing this, but whatever. He's got to get to Vegas. He's got to do the... He's got a mission. Yeah, he's got to claim the throne. But it turns out 
those the family are cannibals and they try to eat the kid yeah yeah that, the kid is what's for dinner uh basically exactly so. where's the beef here, yeah right right here so the kid fortunately is saved by the emergence of a group that i really love in this movie called the windmill people they're coming from a windmill and there are lots of windmill farms and these out. are these are like modern it was clear that this was filmed in like modern day these this is like a wind farm you, yeah. you think with the turbines and everything i don't know who built those wind farms right because they weren't built in the 1950s right yeah um, exactly so I don't know where those came from. And also, they're all wearing spacesuits, which is not something you see a lot in 1957. But it's just – yeah, it's just it's just funky. It's like – yeah, it's just funky. It looked like it, these suits were just cobbled together. Maybe they had – they were trying to avoid the radiation. Who knows? I don't know. I, no idea. They're wearing basically like a water uh, carboy like – the, the, like the thing you would have in your water cooler in your office. They're wearing those as like the backpack. And tubes. It, it's super weird, but it does work. I mean, it, it, it's it's scary. These random these guys are trying to chase the kid, and they're trying to the the, the family gets in another car, and with the ratchet fixes the car, and they drive away. Um, and this is one thing yeah, I think was good about this movie, and also bad is there's a lot of like interesting elements to the world. They don't really explain any of it, but right. it's kind of fun because you get to think about well, what could this have meant? So we get to talk about it now for an hour. I'm sure each of these scenes were filmed on one of those weekends when they filmed the movie, and they didn't know what they were going to do until Thursday, Friday of that week, and then whatever they could put together. It's kind of fun. Um, so the the car with the cannibal family drives away, and they wake up Buddy, who now realizes, oh, shoot, I got to go back and save this kid again. Uh, so he, fortunately, Buddy comes in and slices up all of the windmill people. I'm starting to sense a pattern of right. kid in trouble. Yeah. Buddy comes and saves. But the kid fixes up a motorbike, and he proves his value, and then they get on a bike and... And they kind of travel along until randomly it crashes for yeah, no reason right. again. <laughs> exactly. I got a nightmare of watching that scene in uh, the movie Atomic Train that we did with uh, uh, Fred Elliott. Right, yeah. Oh where all of a sudden that just uh, – Isai Morales just crashes the yeah, motorcycle for no, for no reason. Yeah, For no reason. Whatever. What a train wreck that one was. <laughs> oh! Hey, now you know how this podcast works. Um, and now they need another ratchet to fix, to fix the bicycle. They don't have that. Uh, but what we are treated to see is another one, um, basically a montage of death, the character, killing a bunch of other people that look like they are trying to also claim the throne. But they also represent genres of music. Yeah, so like similar to like Buddy, you know, representing 1950s. Um, yeah, there's, there's these other people who are lookalikes for popular musical tropes. And once again, the costumes are very like... Yep. Outlandish, recognizable, and like they've clearly been through a war and wandering around the desert. We've got a we've got a, someone dressed like a hip hop star. We've got a country music person. Uh, we have a mariachi band member that gets sliced up. At least I'm glad that they got represented pretty well here. Yeah, um, and then someone that looks like Jerry Lee Lewis as well gets gets sliced up. So clearly, death is that's his game of getting the throne is by knocking out all the competition. He doesn't want to have to compete. In the battle of the bands or whatever it happens to be. So then Buddy and the kid make it to the town of Fallout, which is, you know, a very appropriate name. It's a, what, like 200 miles-ish away from Las Vegas. And this is where the movie gets a little bit even weirder than it already is. Uh, the kid gets dropped off by Buddy to this little prison who is selling toilet water, right? Um, and he yeah. essentially just says, here, can I give this kid to you? Yeah. I don't want to rumble with you, little man. I just want to drink off that nasty-ass toilet water you're trying to sell. Man, you didn't come all the way for toilet water. Good point. How are you with kids? 
terrible. Great. You're hired. Now, where can I get a real drink? Follow the yellow brick road, homie. See you around, kid. I got a gig in Vegas. He, now the kid is once again is no now no longer useful, and yeah. Buddy's showing. I, I, it's it's hard to like Buddy um, because he keeps trying to give this kid away. Uh, then Buddy goes to a bar. Um, kind of basically tries to get with a prostitute. It's a very odd. And this, and this bar, I mean, this bar is full of these kind of almost not mutant looking people, but just like people who look like they've been through like a really bad thing and just yeah. very over the top. Um, and the bar itself is kind of run down. It's just this like watering hole in the middle of the desert. And uh, everyone there just seems like spaced out. Like you could tell people have been dealing with the aftermath uh, for a number of decades. Exactly. And then we we also find out that there's this other guy at the bar who challenges Buddy to to fight and he Buddy puts him in his place. You don't want to be like me, kid. Go home. Start a family. Get a picket fence. And get a real guitar. And we see Death and his gang come in and we also learn that oh, Buddy he goes and saves the kid. And Death realizes that now that Four Eyes, who keeps calling him Four Eyes, his weakness is that, that the boy makes him very uncool. His heart is his weakness. The boy. The boy. The boy makes him very uncool. This is kind of a turning point in the movie, because until now, he keeps trying to, like, get rid of the kid. And yeah. this is the first time where... The kid talks. Yeah, the kid talks, and, like, he doesn't really need the kid, and he goes back to save him. And I, from now on in the movie, he's no longer trying to give the kid away, really. Right. So about 100 miles now, so we're getting closer to Las Vegas, to Las Vegas, but he is challenged by the guy from the bar earlier that he, you know, puts in his place. And I think, Gabe, right, this guy is also meant to represent someone else. In the musical world? Yeah, it looks like, yeah, Richie Valens or Big Bopper, one of the guys who also died in the plane crash with him. This guy just takes his, grabs a sword, everybody has swords, and he just runs at Buddy, and Buddy slices him down without any, any sort of thought. But the kid now is really sad by this, and Buddy is affected by this. He puts the sword, like, in the ground and says, I gotta get a new gig. Let somebody else be king. But the kid retrieves the sword, brings it back to Buddy, and says, you can still be a good king. And I think that is a, a moment where they bond a little bit further as well. And the kid's like, no, I'm actually okay with you murdering yeah. lots of people. No problem. Yeah. Just say, go for it. Just snap before you before you do it and after you do it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's, that's what he likes. Uh, so then we get this fun scene um, of a, like a sunset montage of the kid learning martial arts from the... From Buddy, so that now the kid is is starting to become a little bit like Buddy himself. Yeah. They snuggle up to each other and sleep on the edge of a sand dune. Uh, and We're using a, using the guitar as a pillow, that was great. It, it's pretty nice. Uh, but then, of course, Death catches up to him, tries to steal the kid. They get into a little bit of a skirmish, and I think what happens is pretty fun. Buddy puts the kid on the guitar, who uses it as a, like a toboggan to slide down the sand dune. Death's army alternates between being very good with bows and arrows and also being really, really bad. bad. Yeah, exactly. They fire like 60 shots at Buddy and he just 
is flipping, jumping up and down, using his sword to slice him. It's kind of a fun little scene. Everything, it seemed like they get away, but then something grabs the kid and drags him yeah, into... Yeah, and he, he calls it a spinach monster. You never really see, you just see like a furry arm in one spot. It's very unclear what this is. This, I think, was just not thought out at all, and they were just like, oh, we need to move the plot along. Yep. Uh, spinach monster, uh, get this piece of pipe, put some fur on it. Oh, we got it, yeah. Yep, so Buddy needs to look for the kid. He goes into the sewers, because he figures the kid is in the sewers. And this is a kind of a weird place. So the kid is put into the arena, and these very scary people, I can't tell, I don't think they're the windmill people, but they are wearing, like, gas masks, basically. Yeah. So then the, our kid is forced to fight the other kid from the movie, the one... He was kind of annoying. He kind of looks a little bit like uh, Fred Savage. Yeah, yeah, actually he does. And he forces the, these kids to fight with each other. The kid tries to channel the five seconds of training he got earlier in the movie uh, with Kung Fu, but that doesn't really work all that well. But fortunately, Buddy shows up again and tries to save the kid. There's this wonderful line, I love this very much, where the bad guys say, if I were you, I'd run. And then Buddy says, if you were me, you'd be good looking. Snappy line, snappy dialogue. Buddy wins, of course, because he's the one that knows how to do martial arts. This is a recurring theme in the movie. Jeffrey Falcon is really good at martial arts, but no one else is. <laughs> right. And it's 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 like if you were to have an MMA fighter just beat people up, and it's just not. I don't know. It's, it's very entertaining, and they have to shoot it with him doing amazing things, but no one else can do anything back. Yeah, it's like getting the star in Mario, basically invincibility star, just running through everything. Exactly. So now we're 18 miles from Las Vegas. We are in a regular bicycle at this point. So we've gone from a Plymouth to a motorbike. Now we're just like basically like a tricycle. Well, they're going green. They, they don't want to. Yeah, exactly. I love, by the way, that there's gas in this world, like gasoline, refined petroleum products. Mm -hmm. I, I try not to think about that during the movie. <laughs> but anyway. So the kid and Buddy are on this bicycle. And this is where they are now. We keep hearing about the, the Russians invading america and that's why they've used the bomb in the first place and they've won the war but we haven't really seen russians other than the red elvises but now we get to your favorite scene yeah this was great they're, they're on the road and this like old looks like an old russian general once again you know in full military uh, regalia but kind of like dusty and it's clear that they've been like just surviving since the war. He says like you you know no one shall pass without permit or without a paper mm -hmm. and and Buddy like tries to go through and is like step aside, Kami and This is my road. You are in Soviet territory. No one goes through. No one. The war is over, baby. It's been over for years. I'm the new rock and roll king of Vegas. So all you commies, step aside. Of course, the war is over and the Russians have won, so they should get to have oh, exactly. say, right? But whatever. Well, but then, then this one general, he brings out this whole army behind him, and uh, it's clear that Buddy's going to have to, if he wants to go through, he's going to have to go through them. Well, especially because they don't like rock and roll. They like polka music. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, he want, they want to hear some Russian folk stuff, so. Buddy tries to get the kid to go away. Because like he wait, what he gives him his guitar and says go yeah go go see, yeah go go be safe somewhere else so the kid's supposed to just kind of run and let Buddy take care of things let let him float away like a butterfly while Buddy stings like a bee so and Buddy does just that he like charges at the soldiers he's just hacking away the soldiers have these rifles but they're not shooting and actually at one point yeah. th there's this line where they're like why don't we just shoot him and they're like well we don't have, we haven't had bullets since 1957 they're like oh that's pretty funny yeah, I like that line a lot but it's great because it explains it's just 
Because there's a lot of movies where there'll be people with guns yeah. and they just don't shoot. And this actually addresses that. So it's great. He kills dozens and dozens of these people. The total body count in this film, uh, according to a source I read on the internet, 118 is how many buddy kills in the course of this film. And about 100 of them are probably these Russians. He just basically takes out everybody, but he also, he gets gets hurt a little bit too. Well, and this is what bothered me, is that the kid, this is the first time we see this in the movie, the kid who's supposed to be going away, he like comes back to the fight. And yells. And is like screaming for no no apparent reason. And then Buddy like turns around and Buddy gets wounded. So once again, not good kid. You didn't learn well from your, your training in the desert. You're supposed to just let Buddy take care of it. And Buddy is like badly wounded. He passes we, out. We think he's dead. And the kid's like really sad and just starts dragging him along the road. He'll like drag him like 20 feet, then pick up the guitar, move it ahead another 20 feet. And finally, Buddy like, just comes back, he's alive again, and and they're, like, ready to move forward. Which is good timing, because Death and his gang shows up and sees the carnage of what he just did to all of these Russians. And another one of my favorite lines in his movie, Death says, Only one man can kill this many Russians. And then we get to see Lost Vegas, which just looks like a steampunk techno super version of the Emerald City from Wizard of There's Oz. A little, yeah, a little low budget CF, uh, CGI here. It looked like. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the kid channels his Vince Vaughn, his inner Vince Vaughn, and yells "Vegas, Vegas, baby!" <laughs> and he tries to run out. But then, of course, Death and his gang captures the kid, and Buddy has to make a choice. Death says he wants what Buddy values the most, and what does Buddy do? Which I thought it was the guitar the entire time, but then the last second, it looks like. He thought that he meant his guitar pick, which I didn't even know he had a guitar pick. But so it's he gets this guitar pick and he throws it at, at death and, and it turns out, no, it's the kid that Buddy values the most, which is a little touchy moment. Then they, they have a little battle, right? They have with no amps, no mic, no stereos, nothing. They have like a, a rock battle. Yeah, death is like, you know, like bow down to the power of heavy metal. And like, it's like gonna, it's like the battle to see what music style would be dominant. It's like Buddy went down to Nevada. Uh, right, yeah. Instead of going down to Georgia. Yeah. What is the song called? Uh, Devil Went Down to Georgia. Yeah, Devil Went Down to Georgia. So Buddy went down to Nevada. There's, uh, some, there's something there. I don't know where it is. So, so they have this battle. Um, yeah, once again, no amps or whatever. They're just in the middle of the desert. And I was actually a little bit disappointed. There was not a lot of guitar playing. I thought Buddy was going to do a lot more yeah. like guitar playing during the fight scenes, which this is like the first time we actually see him play. And he actually looks pretty good because um, he's keeping up with death. I don't know, maybe they use like a hand uh, double or something like that for the guitar stuff, but it looked pretty good and it sounded good too. And death is just like, you're keeping up with me. Like, yeah. screw this. I'm just going to fight you and, and kill you now. My problem with that scene is it he so Death is playing a metal riff. It kind of seems like Buddy is also playing a metal riff. Kind yeah. He's not playing 50s rock and roll. At least it's not as the contrast is not as solid, which maybe tells you a little bit about the the connectivity and how those two genres can work together and they shouldn't be really fighting. I don't know. The kid gets the sword somehow and he basically does this like lightsaber type thing that like luke skywalker or ray from the new star wars films and picks this up and tries to run the buddy tries to save the kid the infinite arrows from this posse keep firing and firing and firing but ultimately buddy gets in front and like saves the kid and gets hit with i don't know like a dozen baker's dozen arrows in the back yeah and once again this kid should have been off like buddy just sent him off be like go away kid and 
I don't know why the kid comes back. I guess he thinks he's helping Buddy out. But anyway. Well, he got those, the, the martial arts training from earlier. Oh, yeah, right. No, that's. Buddy jumps up, says he has an appointment with Death, and we get a, a pretty decent sword fight between Death and, and Buddy. Death says this great line of bend before the ways of heavy metal. <laughs> now, bend before the ways of heavy metal. Uh, at this point, if the meta commentary of, of musical genres battle each other is not evident yet, then you're uh, asleep while watching this movie. And then what ends up happening? The, the What's the final thing? Buddy's about to be defeated by death. The kid spits on death. Yeah, Buddy's like basically incapacitated at this point. Right. He's 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 just about to die. Yeah, and the kid like as as the last act of defiance, the kid's probably gonna die too. He spits on him and it, it like sizzles when it hits his hand. And I guess death is like his kryptonite is water. So he's the, he's either the wicked witch of the west from Wizard of Oz, or he's the aliens from the movie Signs. Right, right. And that melts death, but leaves he leaves his clothes and his hat, yeah, his on the ground. And, and by the way, this scene it was shot in a very strange way because yeah. it's like from the back, and it looks like the kid's like peeing on him. It, it is, it is not a a great shot. Um, my wife walked in. This was a point where she walked in in the movie. She was coming home from dinner. And she sees this scene, and she just goes, nope, and walks right back up. And you had to be able to follow her. Like, no, 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 I swear, this is, this is not what it looks like. Yep, uh, that, was, uh, that was quite a, a series of explanations. Death is defeated. The, the gang, the, the arrow-firing gang, is very impressed by this. And they give him his, I love this line, they give them basically like their business card. Yeah. And says, if you ever need a, a backup band or something, please give us a call. Um, and Buddy's dead, right? We see Buddy dies in the yeah. kid's arms. And then the kid takes Buddy's clothes, his guitar, his glasses. I don't know why he would need the glasses. Maybe the kid has some corrective issues with his with eyes as well. And the guitar and walks towards Las Vegas. And then it kind of does this fade where the kid, from being a small child wearing the clothes, ages up into Buddy, looking like Buddy himself, yeah. walking. So either it's a implied that... Um, Buddy lives on in the kid, or the kid grows into becoming the king, or something. Yeah, who knows necessarily what happens. But that's the that's the movie. That is, it's weird. Six it's weird. Samurai. It's wonderful. You should watch it. I yeah. Again, I I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Uh, I wish there was more nuclear content for a movie that starts with a, a mushroom cloud. So there's a couple. There's a few things here to talk about that we haven't talked about already. Relating to nuclear points. So let's uh, spend a little bit of time on that. We'll do our parking lot movie discussion. If we were one of the 12 or so people that saw this movie in 1998, what we would be talking about. And then we'll kind of do our our wrap up. So for the nuclear points, I've got, uh, let's see here. I have four topics. The first one is there apparently doesn't seem to be in the movie any apparent lingering radiation issues. There's no, except people have dirty faces and some of them are cavemen. So it's not that important, except for the fact that there's clearly, like, no water. But a lot of that is also because it's in the desert, right? So people don't have clean drinking water. Some people may have radiation issues, and that's why they are stuck in that weird frame of mind that they are, you know, reverting to bowling teams or some of the people being cavemen. So that may be what they're trying to say radiation causes and its lingering effects on people. Who, do, who knows? What do you think? I mean, we see in a number of places in the movie characters wearing suits with, like, masks and respirator. Do you think that might be tied in? Or? I, it's a great question. I yeah. mean, the people underground wearing masks 
are are that so that's happening but so why were they underground yeah right you wouldn't need both yeah right there are some people who are just clearly they seem fine like the guy all the me the people who are anyone who's has a guitar seems fine so maybe they're trying to say that music is the way to survive throughout this process it's also been 40 years since the since the war they always always say the bomb drops it's probably multiple bombs but it's hard to tell because las vegas this is my second point las vegas would be a target in the event of a nuclear war whether now or during the cold wars because you have nellis air force base and you also have creech air force base it's also near at the time was called the nevada test site where the united states tested thousand or so nuclear explosions all those things are strategic military points and those things would be under a target. Well, and just for the purpose of this movie, I think you've talked about this before on this podcast, just the the role of Vegas in nuclear lore kind of thing. Right. I mean, do you think that's maybe why they've chosen to set it here a little bit? Or I, I mean, I, I think if they wanted to do a movie in the desert, if they wanted to do a movie about music, you know, Elvis played Las Vegas a lot. It yeah. could, it, you could see a world where Las Vegas maybe was a target but they couldn't the missiles failed so in the video game series uh the fallout video game series there's a whole subplot of the fact that there was a device that prevented as well as like missile defense in las vegas that prevented it from being destroyed so it was one of the few places that wasn't destroyed and it became like a safe haven for people to come and survive while they were there now elvis isn't the king there it becomes basically right. like a casino owner okay. who is the, the 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 who runs Las Vegas. But you know it's not that important. It's not that kind of a movie. Sure. But it does make sense that Las Vegas would be a target. But in this world, something happened that prevented Las Vegas from being destroyed. Could because Nellis Air Force Base is really close to Las Vegas proper. They wouldn't just destroy Las Vegas. There's no reason to do that if it wasn't for. The, the Air Force Base. Unless the Russians had really something against, like, the Flamingo, the Circus Circus, the Sands Hotel. Yeah, uh, decadent capitalists throwing their money around. Exactly. But, you know, this is interesting. So the movie 1957 is such a specific time. Why didn't they just say the 50s, right? Some have it some sort right. of particular time. So I tried to figure this out. So I, you know, I did some, some, some sleuthing in the history books, and I tried to figure out what was happening in 1957 when the war would have happened? And there's some interesting little data points here. Four major events in 1957. So in January 1957, January 5th, the Eisenhower Doctrine commits the United States to defending Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan from communist influence. So those are potential hotspots, right. right? Yeah, yeah, that could have maybe gone awry in some alternate timeline. Yeah. Sure, exactly. Well, also October fourth, Sputnik was launched, and that's a really big focal point to scare people into worrying. Well, if the Russians can put a satellite into space, what happens the next time they put a nuclear warhead on that, and that's able to end up hitting the United States? Yeah, you could see once again alternate universe. Maybe the U.S. escalates its aggression, and that leads to some runaway right. conflict. Yeah. Yep. And so November, uh, not too long after Sputnik, in November seventh, there's a report from a committee that tells uh, Eisenhower that uh, basically the nation's defense readiness shows that the United States is falling far behind the Soviets in terms of missile capability, the ability to fire an intercontinental ballistic missile from Russia to the United States. And now, therefore, they have to start their own program. 
but also they urge citizens to build fallout shelters to protect themselves. Did it, so was this report mo- mostly focused on building more nuclear weapons with more capabilities, that kind of thing? Uh, more missiles, basically. Okay, like, right. we need to catch up. Okay. There's a sense of a missile gap, which at the time certainly was a, a more real thing than it was later in, during the JFK administration where they claimed the Russians had this huge bomber gap, huge missile gap. But there was a concern. These are why people were worried. Did the report lead to... More missiles, yeah. much more, many, many, many more. Okay, okay. Um, it started uh, a whole advance in better capabilities when it came to ICBMs. Okay. And then in November 15th, Khrushchev says that the USSR, the Soviet Union, had a missile superiority over the United States and challenged America to a, quote, shooting match to prove who was the best. You know, obviously, a lot of that was the flair and probably for domestic politics. So maybe that's why 1957 was chosen out of any of these dates. So that he can align, well, rock and roll was was really peaking at that time. Plus, you have this elements of the Cold War. And all of that thing fits together to the point where the Russians drop the bomb. They don't really describe what the war scenario is, how much of the rest of the country is destroyed, how the Russians were able to invade as opposed to just destroy major cities. It's unclear, but except for the fact that the Russians used nuclear weapons and the Russians took over much of America. I will also note 1957 was kind of Buddy Holly's like breakout ah. year. Yeah, um, I think that'll be the day top the U.S. and U.K. charts. So, well, that's uh, fitting because the next line after that is the day that I die. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so the final nuclear point here, because really, I like this movie because it is so interesting of how it fits into nuclear popular culture. But it's not either. Not a ton of of nuclear things that are worth getting into here. Uh, to getting super critical about. But the movie is both like an homage in part to post-apocalyptic disaster films, but also wants to be a part of that genre as well. And there's a whole great number of post-nuclear war zany civilization disaster movies. And I want to list off a couple of them and see which of these you might be interested in covering either on the podcast in the future or if you've ever heard of any of these or what your reaction is to the plot descriptions just based on – Okay. So the first one is called A Boy and His Dog, which is from 1975. It stars Don Johnson, a really young Don Johnson. Okay. And it is a a young man and his telepathic dog wander a post-apocalyptic yeah. wasteland. That sounds amazing. Telepathic right? dog right there. Yeah. You you had me a telepathic dog. <laughs> the movie it's super weird. It's zany. Um there are some very uncomfortable sexual assault scenes that I don't really like watching this movie over and over for. Uh, okay. But we will cover it at some point because it is – if Six String Samurai kind of influenced the Fallout series, A Boy and His Dog definitely influenced that okay. series. Another movie from 1977 called Damnation Alley. Great title. It calls in Jan Michael Vincent. He is leading a small group of survivors at a military installation who – survived World War III, and they attempt to drive across the wasteland to where they hope more survivors are going to be. They have specially built, like, vehicles to protect them against weather in a mutated planet, animal life, giant monsters, all other kinds of stuff. So basically, it's like a van movie with uh, a nuclear post-apocalyptic, you know, atmosphere, starring Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah, I mean, I I check it out. See, it sounds less interesting than the first one, but yeah. uh, yeah. Well, then you got the Mad Max series, so that you know stars either Mel Gibson or Tom Hardy. Um, this is a post-apocalyptic Australian wasteland. So after there are some oil wars where nuclear war uh, takes place, you get this like cynical drifter 
and he agrees in Road Warrior, which is the second of the three Mel Gibson movies. He agrees to like help this community that has a bunch of oil and they want to move their oil because they're being attacked by a bunch of bandits and yeah, I've actually I've never seen any of the Mad Max movies, yeah, somewhat embarrassingly. So, and this is probably the most well known of of all of these. So, yeah, I, I definitely want to check some of those out. But those movies definitely fit into like Six String Samurai, where a nuclear war starts the premise, but it doesn't matter for the rest of it. Right. It is part of that genre. Uh, there's another movie in 1988 called Hell Comes to Frogtown, which just based on that, without any sort of plot description, what do you think that movie is about? Uh, people who look like frogs after a war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It stars Roddy Roddy Piper uh, from professional wrestling fame. After a nuclear war, survivors are divided between horribly mutated beings who live on desolate reservations and fertile women who are searching for scarce, virile men in order to multiply and start a new human race. Yeah, that also might be, in our times, uh, a little bit of a yeah. difficult one to watch. But. It's uh, it's not one I'm interested in revisiting. In the year 2889 is a TV movie from 1967. In a post-nuclear Earth, survivors are stuck in a valley and have to protect themselves from mutant human beings and each other in some cases. I love those old kind of B-movies from yeah. the, yeah, 50s and 60s. That, that I'd, this would be a good one? That'd be cool to check out. Well, another one that's kind of similar to that is called Glenn and Randa uh, from 1971. Glenn and Randa are a young couple struggling to survive amongst uneducated, underfed masses in a post-apocalyptic wasteland once called America. Armed with a stack of tattered comic books and stolen maps, the two set off with their one horse to find Metropolis. Yeah, that could be. Could be interesting. Yeah, it's that one actually is not bad. And then finally, you get the Planet of the Apes movies, which every once in a while sprinkles in some idea that there was a nuclear conflict. Right. Literally, I think the Earth gets destroyed at the end of the timeline. Uh, I think it's called Beneath the Planet of the Apes or something along those lines. So that might be one that we cover at some point is like a small episode type thing. There's more. That's like the big parts of this genre. Sure. So that's where this movie fits into. What I find so interesting about this movie is even though it doesn't have a ton of nuclear things within the plot, but it has the premise, it's clearly a person. I have no indication in any of the research that I've seen that the director who wrote the movie or anyone involved in the picture talked to nuclear experts. They didn't do research into the bomb and its effects or the history beyond kind of what I think happened, which is what their understanding of popular culture was. Maybe these other films that they're talking about. Right. And that's what fed into their understanding. And then they made a movie about that, which I think is so interesting. It's a movie made by people who only understood nuclear pop culture. And that was their lens, how they looked at this. It wasn't, I don't even know. I'm pretty sure the director say didn't live in his formative years through during the Cold time, War. Right, yeah. Right? During, during the time where that would have been. And definitely from, you know, from the standpoint of viewer who's not as uh, as into this stuff as you are, I, I oftentimes feel, you know, when they'll start throwing out jargon in some of the other movies where I feel like I'm in the passenger seat and I'm just like, okay, I, yeah. I guess I'll just accept that's true here. You, you actually kind of feel some, you get to kind of get into the world, you get to see this imagining of it. And I think it's... um. It's powerful as well to think about how would society break down after nuclear war. I mean, threads mm-hmm. that must show a very realistic view, a very um, you know perhaps accurate view. This one is a more you know one potential, more creative view of how how people would just go crazy and just have this like rock and roll focus. And you know, honestly, 
if it happens, nobody knows what it would actually look like. So um, this is just one potential view, and it's kind of fun to, in a dark way, fun to think about that. The movie is is would would be kind of interesting if there wasn't a character who literally was like the embodiment of death. That that adds an element of mysticism and and supernatural and and cosmic battles. Uh, it's similar to I think it's called The Stand, the Stephen King uh, story about like a, a virus that gets unleashed from a government lab and it ends up destroying most of the population except those that happen to be immune to it. And in that one, the devil is involved okay. in terms of. Some of it's not just that, but it's this other element added onto it. So in that way, it almost is a, a very much connected to this film as well. Yeah, but I think you know, I think having and having death in there, it, it makes it you're not going to take it too seriously. Once again, coming back to threads, that's the one where you have to kind of accept as reality here. You know, have your disbelief, which makes it easier to approach a very depressing topic. But every now and then through the movie, I mean, that scene with the family, for example, that's mm-hmm. like. You could see something like that happening, and I thought that supernatural element, it, it gave you the distance you needed to be able to actually dabble in this without being totally depressed and, and ruined. I can see that. It's one of those parts of the, the movie that, after thinking about it for a while, it starts to make a lot of sense. It's just like during the movie itself, you're just like, wait, yeah. hey, what's going yeah. on? Yeah. Which is, you know, a, a perfectly fine response to it, and it's entertaining. Let's move away from the nuclear plot. Let's go into our parking lot movie discussion. So this is what I like to think about because when I used to watch movies with friends, we would chat after before we went our separate ways in the parking lot about what the hell did we just see or putting ourselves in that mindset. Do you think that that was actually either Buddy Holly himself? Probably not if you if there was any sort of mystical element to it because right. Buddy Holly would be 60. He'd be in his 60s if the movie was taking place in the, the time period they say it is. So either radiation did some wonders for his 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 ability to survive. Took those uranium pills. Yay. Take one a day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, radium is good for the skull. Or is Buddy Holly maybe someone else who took over the mantle from a previous Buddy Holly? And that's kind of what we're seeing. So it's like a Batman storyline where Batman retires and someone else takes over the mantle. Yeah. Is that basically what's happening here? I think in it's the somebody. Film? I think it's somebody who took over the mantle, and like Buddy Holly becomes this, you know, mystical persona that gets perpetuated. And I think you see that at the end with the kid. I'd say. I'd say that's the intent here. Not that it really matters for the yeah. purposes of the movie, but I'd, I'd say that that probably would be the intent of the filmmakers here. Well, as part of that, you know, my next question is, you know, what makes Buddy the right person to claim the throne of Las Vegas? If the movie's playing by Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Rules, and I think you said you haven't seen the right. Bill and Ted movies, but in that movie, it, its central premise is that there's these two, you know, not necessarily the most intelligent people, but they're 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 nice people. And they're in a band, but the band kind of sucks, and they're about to get expelled from school because they can't pass their history test, right? So there's this guy from the future who comes in and says, no, you need to pass your test because if you don't, then the band breaks up and you're not able to form the greatest rock and roll metal band of all time so that that band actually brings civilization together in a harmony of peace and prosperity for the world. So that's the whole premise of the movie is they need to then – Go back in time, talk to like Abraham Lincoln, Joan of Arc, Socrates, so they can learn about history and then pass their history test. Uh, so if it's playing by that those rules, then I guess the idea of what makes a good ruler in this post-apocalyptic world are people whose music is so powerful that it unites everyone yeah, and together. I, I think in the yeah in the post-apocalyptic wasteland, people are just miserable and like 
Hmm. Any something that would lift people's spirits would be of such value that yeah, you'd become like one of the most you know qualified people to do that. So, so I, music music is the thing that would unite people. Yeah, you know, you have the radio, you have the radio going. Like that's that's the thing that's keeping you like you know to survive. That's one of the last like vestiges that you remember from hmm. from the old days. So I think yeah, Buddy Holly's probably a good one because he's. He was just so well-known, pioneer in the genre, and he's just also so cool, right? It's just, yep, you that, still think about him with the plastic, you know, plastic frame glasses, and, like, it's just... He's a snappy dresser. Yeah, it, there you go. I, I see you're doing the snaps, too. That's fantastic. It's addictive. Daddy-o, yeah. I don't know. It just worked for me. I enjoy, like, the idea of that. I'm not, like, super into it, but I enjoy the idea of that, like, culture, so yeah. maybe I'm a little biased here, but no, you could see music, yeah, uniting people, providing that diversion, that becomes the, the currency of power in the future do you think the movie makes a statement that the only music that could unite people is rock and roll you know obviously it's death that's going around killing the other genres but could you do you think that like mariachi music or (laughs) hip-hop or uh if ultimately if death is able to rule with a a firm but maybe fair hand Mm. that death metal could unite people or is the movie making a statement that it's only this particular of wholesome chuck berry buddy holly rock and roll yeah. that can bring people together i don't know i don't know if i go that far i think uh it's certainly a good candidate though right because you think about the 50s as a very yeah like wholesome time for many americans probably not for some other americans but uh yeah, you yeah. Know, not a great time for some other americans like, but like, like chuck berry <laughs> perhaps but uh yeah so i could see that i think the, i think the the guy who made the movie just really he he just had a thing for like the music like the music of this time that that's what it seemed like or he had a thing for bill and ted movies because in the second movie bill and ted's bogus journey there's a scene where they fight death to get a chance to come oh, back really? to life i haven't seen it so. it's a it's an homage to the seventh seal which is an ingrid bergman movie where uh death plays chess with someone for the right to survive and not die but in bill and ted's excellent adventure they play like battleship and what's that twister and a bunch of other kind of fun games it's 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 a great movie. i actually really like that movie um so i also wanted to look at some examples of like what are some leaders some american presidents who may have been able to fight or to rival elvis for the claim of, of who for leadership because if music is what unites people what are some american presidents who have also been known for playing music and i have a couple examples here the internet tells me you know barack obama did win a grammy of course for best spoken word album uh but he's a pretty good singer right he sing we we, we see him covering an al green song and a couple other stuff so maybe he would have been able to to claim leadership over las vegas right. Uh, we have Bill Clinton, famous for playing the saxophone on the Ar- Ar- Arsenio Hall show. In that episode of Arsenio Hall, played Heartbreak Hotel, an Elvis song. There you go. So maybe he could have out Elvis. Elvis yeah, he just transitioned in. Yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan played the harmonica. Richard Nixon was a accomplished accordion and piano player. I don't know if the accordion's gonna. It's get not gonna to catch king. it. Piano, maybe. If you if you play some good good uh, yeah like uh, funky. Some like I don't know country style piano or rock style piano rock yeah maybe you could do that. Well, the accordions might have been able to get the Russians on his side, uh, right? Some polka music. I like where you're thinking. That. Thomas Jefferson and Abe Lincoln both played the violin. Yeah, I know. Uh, too, too, yeah, too, too classical. Yeah, no, it's not going to unite the hearts and minds. And finally, Harry S. Truman, famous for being the American president who dropped the atomic bomb, was an aspiring concert piano player until he stopped when he was like 15 because he decided, quote, 
My choice early in life was either to be a piano player in a whorehouse or a politician. And to tell the truth, there's hardly any difference. But up, up, ching. Perfect. Who knows who could have taken over uh, the mantle from Elvis? Sure. Um, uh, do you think there should have been any other genres of music or other bands represented? I'm surprised there wasn't some representation of like a British boy band, like a Beatles style thing. Right, right. That should have been in there. I thought like a blues, there was all that kind of blues guitar, Lewis Jordan and all that other stuff going in the 50s. That probably should have been in there. Um, I don't know. What yeah, else? Not a lot of jazz. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, no jazz, um, no Metallica, no Linkin Park. I mean, I think Miles, like Miles Davis versus Buddy Holly, that would have been a great battle scene in that movie. I'm really disappointed. I know it's too bad. So that's uh, that's all I have to talk about for the movie. You have anything else you wanna wanna cover in this film? No, I I think um, you know, like I said, for me, it was a more fun of of the movies that you've forced me to watch, Mystery Science Theater three thousand style. <laughs> uh, this was a more fun break from like the technical stuff to mm-hmm. kind of see this like funky. And I came in ready to, like I said, poop on this movie and say, oh, this is like low budget, it's going to be ridiculous. But it just it doesn't take itself too seriously. There's some parts where it falls apart. The boy screaming, I just don't really like that. Yep. That's annoying, and the ending feels a little rushed, but. It's just it's well done for what they had to you know make it with and well that that's a it's a really good review but let's put this in a more scientific way uh, of doing the rating so we in our rating systems for every episode we always rate things from a consistent one to five scale one being not so great something Gabe would want to poop on the five being something amazing something he would definitely not want to do anything to other than watch it over and over again keep the poop away exactly we also like to be very tailored in our rating system since i'm going to be uh super critical about the plot then let's be really fine-tuned with the rating so i've crunched the numbers here and i've determined let's do a one out of five arrow slinging bandmates so you know like but your backup band's got some arrows you can't come up with a hit with just one but if you've got five, then you might just strike the right chord. Ah, there, there we go. So, <laughs> maybe go platinum. <laughs> exactly. So, what do you think? What do you think, Tim? I, I am going to give this a solid two point five arrow slinging bandmates, and I mean that in a very positive way. It is a a fun homage to like Hong Kong kung fu movies, which I also really like, disaster movies from the fifties and the sixties. But that kid is really annoying, and it it takes you out of the movie at the beginning. Even though it's got good camera work, um, I think the idea of the fact that you hire one really good martial arts guy, but no one else can keep up with that individual, is really means that it eliminates what potential for it. And I kind of wish you mentioned the movie doesn't take itself too seriously. I wish the movie actually went one extra level of zany. Okay, and it's clear like this movie is is in the same vein of like Evil Dead. Sam Raimi type comedy spoof movies. If it was just a little bit more, I think I would have enjoyed it more. Uh, okay. It's actually in some ways it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it does know what it's doing and it tries to hit on that and it isn't fourth wall breaking and I kind of feel like if the movie was a little bit weirder, it would have worked. 2.5 for this kind of film, that's actually not bad for me. Yeah, no, I think It's a movie right. that I would recommend to people when it, I don't recommend other movies that we've done on the podcast that I may have been rated higher. What about you? I might even go a little higher. I might even say three, uh, 3.0, just because for me, I mean, aside from the kid being annoying and just some of those plot issues, I do agree with you. It, it 
at some times it tries to be too serious, um, especially at the end where it it has like a very Hollywoodish ending where like there's some music and the kids like going off in the sunset. If the kid did something ridiculous at the end, like you know, there's like one last battle and he just did something crazy, like that would yeah. be that would be fun for me. The movie should have ended that battle with the Russians. Uh, that was just so it's pretty good. It should have ended on a weird note, but no, I thought um, once again for what they had to do with it. Um, it was well worth my time. I think it's very taste specific, though. I could see a lot of people out there who would watch this and, and hate it. Yeah. Um, but look, it's ninety minutes it's on YouTube. I'd say give it a try. You might like it. It's a it's a low cost investment. Exactly. So other things, if you want to check out, whether it's on YouTube or otherwise, uh, I've got three things. I don't know if you have anything, but uh, I've got obviously recommending the Fallout video games. Uh, we did an episode on that with a really great guest, uh, Lucy Steigerwald, who has an entire blog about post-apocalyptic movies. I also really recommend a movie called El Mariachi from 1992. It's directed by Robert Rodriguez. It was one of his first movies that kind of led to things like Desperado and those kind of genres. And it's a really low-budget film. It's about a traveling mariachi uh, band member who is mistaken for a murderous criminal, and he must hide from a gang that's trying to kill him. And it's the whole idea of like a mariachi band uh, having a guitar case full with guns comes from that movie. And it's one that I remember my Spanish teacher in high school, Mr. Castillo, showed this movie to us in class, and we were blown away about how fun it was. And it's really clear there's a lot of strong influence from that movie. So check that one out. Uh, as well as, hey, recommending watching one of those bad nuclear disaster movies that I mentioned earlier. Any of those uh, would be fine. And if you liked one of them and you think we should cover it on the podcast, uh, let us know either on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast or email me at supercriticalpodcast.gmail.com. Gabe, do you have anything you want people to check out? I just go listen to some of that music that we've been talking about. Go listen to some Buddy Holly. Go listen to some of the surf rock music uh, like Dick Dale and the Surfaris and all that kind of stuff. What, and about, the, what about the Red Elvises? That's what I was going to say. Go check out the Red Elvises. They did the soundtrack for this movie. I think it was it was pretty cool and It'll definitely get you in the nuclear mood. Um, maybe maybe we'll hear some of them on our podcast at a future date. I thought it was a good, really good like background music for some of this stuff. Yeah, nice. I'll uh, I'll play I'll play us out on the podcast with some Red Elvises. Awesome. Don't get sued, Tim. <laughs> uh, Gabe, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. All right, thanks for having me. Good to be back. We'll get you back again once you uh, our travel schedules line up. But the next episode that I'm going to record uh will be on godzilla because it's all in the news right now with the new movie coming out um jeff wilson from our previous episodes will come back uh, as well as a couple other new people uh and if you're interested in getting a preview of that jeff wilson now runs a podcast called nukes of hazard it's an amazing podcast i definitely recommend it and the most recent episode that i've listened to is a one where they talk about godzilla and that'll be a good uh, lead up to the episode that we're going to cover pretty soon thanks for listening to another episode of the super critical podcast if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell me what we got wrong nuke wise or you know about the history of music let us know uh, a couple ways you can do that you can go on twitter at nuclear podcast we're on facebook at facebook.com slash podcast you can check out our recently new designed website supercriticalpodcast.com there's a contact form there as well as links to resources that we use to inform 
the episode. There's a couple special features. I'm going to be redoing the more content for the site, so check that out. And if you have an email account, I have got one too, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get supercritical about it. Have a good one. 